Okay, so let's get started. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. Oops, sorry. Dr. Judy Currier, who's a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases, the Department of Medicine at UCLA. And um, it will talk to us on updates from CROI 2023, snippets from Seattle. Thank you very much. Thanks, Elaine, and uh, thank you, Paul, for all your leadership. I do look forward to our celebrations uh, throughout the day. So I am going to just want to ask how many people in the audience went to CROI? Okay, a few. All right. Um, so these are my disclosures, and these are the learning objectives uh, after <clears throat> this talk. I'm not going to read them. I'm going to jump right into it. So this was the first in-person CROI since 2019, which was really quite a thrill to be back together again in person. It was a little overwhelming. Um, many of us haven't been traveling as much, and I forgot my toothpaste and my phone charger and things like that. Um, but the opening session this year was really phenomenal, and I just um, highlight it here because it's available on demand from the website. Um, in addition to the um, really incredible lectures from Alan Perelson and, and Kevin DeCock and Yvette um, Raphael, Dr. Fauci gave a talk which was sort of a timeline of the history of HIV and his involvement, and it was really, really terrific. The rest of the materials from the conference will be available, um, I think, in another month. So I encourage you to take advantage of the resources of the website. So this is the Scott Hammer Memorial uh, Lecture, and um, I just have so much admiration for Scott, and one of his passions was downhill skiing. Um, and so I thought of Scott as I was trying to make my talk and figure out um, which topics I should cover, looking at all the other speakers who are here with us today and assuming they're, they're gonna be covering some highlights. So I was kind of uh, making some turns around uh, cardiovascular disease, which will be covered by Dr. Grinspoon, new drugs, which Dr. Benson will cover, pre-exposure prophylaxis, Dr. Scott, and STI prevention. So many of these topics I'm not gonna get into, so you may be wondering, why didn't she talk about that great study? Because you're gonna hear about it later. Um, but I really do miss Scott. He was an incredible leader and mentor and friend to so many people, and uh, alpine skiing was one of his passions for a good part of his life. So I was challenged of what, what was new besides all of those things. And so like any, any good soldier, I decided to ask ChatGPT, the AI platform, what was new at CROI in 2023. And it was actually quite hysterical because the bot got back to me and said that as an AI language model, I don't have access to future events and I can't make any predictions. However, I can tell you what was new at 20, CROI 2020 and it gave kind of a general summary. And I said, but CROI 2023 was held in Seattle in February of 2023. And it replied that as an AI language model, I cannot confirm or deny the occurrence of future events. And I said, so I guess you don't realize that it's now March of 2023, and it said, as an AI language model, I do not have access to real-time information or a calendar. So it doesn't know what day it is, so I think our jobs are safe. 
anyway, it didn't help, wasn't much help. So these are a list of the topics that I'm going to cover, just some highlights of things that I thought were interesting and uh, provocative from this year and topics that uh, it was really hard to, to pick from such an enormous uh, amount of information. And I, I only have one, one COVID uh, talk to mention at the end, but the COVID content at this meeting this year, we could have a whole day's course just reviewing what was new in COVID-19. So I do encourage you to check out that part of the website um, when everything becomes live. All right, so starting with mortality trends. Uh, this was a large cohort study, over 30,000 people, looking at trends in mortality between 2012 and 2019. And I think, as we've all, you know, would, would surmise, mortality continues to improve, um, and all-cause mortality rates decrease from 13 to 8.6 per thousand uh, person years of follow-up. The age at death increased, but notice how young the age of death, median age of death is still, 52 to 56 years old. Decreasing mortality was seen across a number of conditions, non-AIDS defining malignancies, um, cardiovascular disease, liver disease, uh, and other causes. And as would be predicted, factors associated with higher mortality were lower CD4 count, higher viral load, having diabetes or cardiovascular disease, having end-stage liver or renal disease, and use of uh, injection drugs. Now, another um, uh, interesting topic was low-level viremia that we all struggle with and see in the clinic. People who come in who are adherent to their medications and have viral loads that come back between uh, 50 to 100 uh, and sometimes between 50, yeah, 50 to 100. So th this group from the U.S. military, so that's the population, um, looked at different definitions of low-level viremia. So low-level was between 51 and 199. So this was in a system where undetectable was less than 50. High-level was between um, 200 and 1,000, 999. And then virologic failure was having a viral load greater than 200 or a single measure of greater than 1,000. And what they were looking at were the clinical consequences of these measures. And I think previous studies have suggested that low-level viremia, it happens, they're blips, they may be clon it may be clonal expansion, but there aren't really consequences. Well, this data suggested that people with low-level viremia um, may have higher rates of serious non-AIDS events. Now, stronger uh, predictors were having high-level viremia or having um, a lower CD4 count, but low-level viremia uh, was a predictor. And I think it, it makes us, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do about low-level viremia between 50 to, uh, to 199. Adding more drugs doesn't seem to do anything. It may be a harbinger in some people of reduced adherence. Um, Studies with tenofovir urine monitoring and other things have suggested that. Um, but it, I, I think these results need to be confirmed and also it, in other populations. Um, it, the authors of this um, abstract suggest that it also make us rethink outside the U.S. where virologic failure thresholds are much higher, 1,000, uh, whether that's the most appropriate uh, benchmark. But I think more data is needed. Now I'm going to talk about cabotegravir ropivirine. This was a big topic at the meeting this year, and I think we're all aware it's been approved for use. Uh, it can be given every four weeks uh, or every eight weeks. And I think it's been um, one of these 
new advances that we didn't adequately prepare for. I know we are really struggling in our clinic in Los Angeles to operationalize this for patients, um, mostly due to problems with people who actually have insurance. Um, ironically, getting approval, prior approval. I just got a, a email on my way here last night saying that I needed to write a medical necessity letter because the Blue Cross is denying this for a patient who's been getting it. Um, so it, it is, um, I think it's, we're working our way into figuring out how to use it. And, and, and for, for, I think many of us have hoped that long-acting uh, injectable therapy would be an answer for people who've really struggled with adherence. But we all know those are not the participants that were included in the registrational clinical trials. Um, so some of the new data on, on uh, cadbropivirine at Croy, one was whether you could use an injection in the thigh as um, in contrast to gluteal injections, thinking that this might be better tolerated or potentially opens the opportunity for self-injection. Uh, so people who had been on gluteal injections for more than three years, so this is a selected population who was doing well on gluteal injections, were um, ran either got, they weren't randomized to these things, they either got, um, uh, they went from IM gluteal to IM thigh, either Q4 weeks or Q8 weeks. And basically there were no significant differences in PK and the safety was acceptable and there were no confirmed virologic failures. But the participant preference was really for gluteal. 70% uh, preferred the gluteal, saying there was less pain after injection. And, and so this may limit the utility of this, but it's a first step in evaluating an alternate um, injection way. Now, a study that got a lot of publicity was from Ward 86 in San Francisco, where they really took a very bold step and tried to ask for those uh, people who struggled with adherence and had not been able to uh, suppress their viral load, could this be an option if it was done under very close monitoring uh, situation? So these are people who had adherence challenges that had to, they were required and to demonstrate their willingness to physically come to the clinic every four weeks. Uh, they had intensive social support services and review of the participant statuses uh, biweekly. And they required that they not have prior resistance to integrase or rilpivirine. And, um, and so they enrolled 100 and I think it's 133 participants. Important detail, um, the way the study has been described by other people, not the authors, is that the study demonstrates that we can now use this combination in people who are viremic. Well, that's not quite, the, quite, quite what it showed. 55 of the, only 55 of the participants were viremic um, at the time they started this therapy. The rest were suppressed, which is, the, which is what the drugs indicated for. But of the 50, or 57 viremic, uh, two uh, failed therapy, and they did so quite promptly. Um, so the failure rate in the viremic participants was about 3.5%, which is still quite low. The follow-up is not as long as we really need. And so I, I think while this is very provocative, suggesting that we might be able to use this with really close follow-up and very innovative behavioral uh, interventions, um, it, it's a first step. And I think the results do need to be replicated in, in more than one site. Uh, we need to determine what are the services that need to wrap around this, uh, this intervention. 
but it does provide some hope that for those who are really unable to be suppressed, that this, this could be a way forward. Now, for those who are suppressed, uh, you know, we've had the data uh, um, for switching to cabrolpivirine from a variety of different regimens. The SOLAR study looks specifically at people who were suppressed on Bictegravir um, and TAF FTC and, and um, looked at whether randomized them to either switch to uh, cabrolpivirine or stay on their current therapy. Uh, and they were followed over the course of, of 12 months. And I think this is a very practical study. A lot of people are on Bictegravir FTAF and are wondering if, if they should, should switch, wondering what the failure rate is in that population, or they're doing very well on the combination. So the population was young, median age of 37, it was 82% male. Uh, most had been on treatment for two and a half years. About half reported some sorts of psychological challenges. Um, and they found in the study uh, that the switch was non-inferior, switching to Cabril was non-inferior to staying on the current treatment. Um, and I think once again, and it's a surprise to, to many people, is that 90% um, of the people who switched said they preferred the long-acting regimen to their daily therapy. I think we underestimate how uh, patients really experience switching off a daily pill to only having to come in and, and get injectables. Um, and treatment satisfaction, you know, overall improved. So I think this is reassuring about the switch, um, about the safety of it, and, uh, and also about how well it was, how well people liked it. Big question is, well, what about their weight? Um, there's a lot of focus on weight changes, and they looked at, um, specifically looked at weight changes over 12 months, and basically saw no significant difference between the arms. So people didn't lose weight when they switched off BIC FTAF, and they didn't gain weight when they um, went on the other treatment. So there really was no difference there. Now the characterized study, and that is how they spell it, <laughs> is a, was an interesting study uh, from the uh, advanced study, which was the South African study that randomized people who were treatment naive to receive dolutegravir efavirenz, dolutegravir with either um, TAF and FTC or, or uh, tenofovir FTC. This was 172 people from that original study who then switched again to see whether switching their therapy would have an impact on their weight. So um, they looked at 52 weeks after the switch to continuing um, to either to switch to dolutegravir plus FTAF, uh, dolutegravir, uh, tenofovir, or favorins. And th these were all people who had been on, um, they'd been on any of these regimens. And basically, looking at the original uh, regimen in the advanced study, which is um, the graph on the right, those who'd been on dolutegravir with um, TDF, when they switched, uh, to, they didn't change, they didn't have any difference. Those who switched to, um, who'd been on efavirenz, when they switched to dolutegravir with tenofovir and, and 3TC, they experienced weight gain. So switching off efavirenz. And those who had been on um, dolutegravir with, with TAF, uh, when they switched to TDF, had a loss of about 1.2 kilograms. So some of these switch, some of these weight changes are weight 
late loss effect of uh, afavirenz and, and tenofovir that then um, is mitigated when they switch. But they're not really huge changes in weight. So many of the studies now of um, weight change in, in people with HIV starting treatment um, have identified higher BMI, greater than 30, female sex, black race, maybe genetics uh, contributing to weight changes. So there's a study that looked at mitochondrial haplogroups um, associated with weight gain. And this was in Spain, and where the median weight gain in the group was 2.9 kilograms. They found one particular haplotype, UK, that was associated with less weight gain. There was another study that looked at mechanistically, was there a, an explanation of why dolutegravir might be associated with more weight gain? And it demonstrated in a, a mouse model that dolutegravir down-regulated the estrogen receptor alpha, which impacts uh, thermogenesis in the mouse model. So potentially suggesting there may be a direct effect of the drug. I think um, what was most I think, illuminating, at least for me, was a session where Donald O'Shea, who's an obesity um, specialist and researcher, really talked about uh, weight changes in HIV in perspective. And you know, we're, we are seeing these weight changes, two to three kilograms, in the backdrop of really high rates of obesity in the population. And we're focusing on small changes in people who have significant obesity to start with, where maybe we should be thinking about their obesity as a problem on its own, and what are the interventions that we have to offer, um, aside from focusing just on what the effects of ART are. And he talked about um, approaching this issue in clinic, uh, being very sensitive to the patient perspectives and asking if it's okay to discuss your weight today. He talked about how our bodies have a very strong defense against weight loss. Once we've gained weight, we do everything we can to hang on to it. And that weight gain is 90% irreversible in 90% of people. That's kind of depressing. Um, but that there are really new medications coming into the field where we're learning outside of HIV, the GLP-1 agonists really show promise in, in reversing obesity and having, you know, being a major tool for intervention. And that we need to think about obesity as a chronic disease like diabetes and hypertension, where treatment may not need to just be for the short term. So it's very provocative talk about obesity and HIV and really put the weight changes that we see with ART in perspective. Now, um, Getting back to ART switches, this is a study from the TRIO uh, EMR database of about 7,000 people. They just looked at why, or not why, but trying to understand when people make switches to Bictegravir and FTAF or Dolutegravir 3TC, what favors maybe choosing one over the other. Um, they've both been shown to be non-inferior to standard three-drug regimens, and um, the predictors associated with the switch to the dolutegravir 3TC, the two-drug regimen, um, over the BICTAF were having a prior integrase, having a higher CD4 count, so people weren't doing that so often if the CD4 count was more advanced. Um, people with renal insufficiency, no history of substance use, maybe their payer, and then also if they were obese um, or had a normal BMI, more likely to switch to that combination. So it was kind of interesting. 
reflection on what people are doing in practice. Another um, antiretroviral therapy study called the D2EFT or DEFT study looked at um, the population of people who are failing first-line therapy with an NNRTI and two NRTIs. So in the U.S., that's not a very common population anymore. Um, outside the U.S., the transition to, to dolutegravir and tenofovir has, has really made a lot of progress, but there still are places where people are on first-line NNRTIs. So they were interested in whether um, switching to a boosted PI, darunavir, switching to a novel combination of dolutegravir and darunavir, so no, um, no NRTIs, or dolutegravir and tenofovir um, XTC or FTC or 3TC. Um, and this was, again, the current analysis presented here was 48 weeks. The participants were average age of 39, 46% male, and CD4 counts of uh, 206. And they found, basically, that both dolutegravir arms, either with darunavir or with uh, tenofovir XTC, were not inferior to the protease inhibitor um, arm. The viral load results are shown in the right, and they're numerically a little bit higher rates of suppression in the two dolutegravir groups. Um, there was significant weight, and, and actually dolutegravir darunavir was superior to the um, darunavir 2 NRTIs. The, there was significant weight gain in both dolutegravir arms compared to the darunavir arm, about a, a kilogram difference. I'm not really sure where this is going to fit into our practice, but I think that sometimes you might have people who have, for various reasons, inability uh, to take nucleosides and um, who have prior NNRTI resistance that this might be a combination that, to consider. Okay, so moving into a couple of other topics. Um, Exercise, I think it's really not disputed, the benefits of exercise in improving multiple modalities in, in life. Um, but this was a study focused specifically on people living with HIV who are experiencing frailty. And it was an open label study of a, an exercise program that was done at home through a remote um, instruction. And they looked at people with HIV and a comparator group. They were not randomized comparisons. And they looked at a measures of, um, of frailty using the frailty phenotype and then also did multiple objective measures as well. And in those who, uh, who those living with HIV, the dark blue bars are the baseline and the aqua bars are after three months. You can see that there's a reduction in the um, the number who are pre-frail pre and higher levels of those who are robust. So it showed a significant improvement in their um, frailty assessment with exercise. And I think this is really, uh, this is not the most, you know, rigorous randomized study, but I think for exercise, it's, it's such, it's really these kinds of studies just reinforce that these are things that we should be figuring out how to integrate into people's lives. Uh, whatever is feasible for them to be able to do, there will be benefit, and more benefit than many of the other things that we, um, that we try to do. So I am a big proponent of exercise in clinical practice or finding ways to encourage it. Okay, shifting over here now to liver fibrosis. Um, this is a, a, a topic that got a lot of attention this year. 
Um, and that particularly people are concerned with the background rates of obesity, with weight gain in people living with HIV, what will the impacts be on the liver? Um, so in this first study, they looked at progression of liver fibrosis um, among people with HIV who had evidence of metabolic dysfunction associated liver disease, so it's called MAFLD. And it's, it's kind of another term that's used instead of non-alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis for people who have metabolic abnormalities um, and then looking at their liver disease. And they basically um, found, they used um, non-invasive measurements, a fiber scan, but they found that it was greater than people who had more, a higher BMI and had more, gained more than 5% weight, but didn't vary by what type of art you were on. So it was the weight, uh, weight levels that really predicted uh, liver fibrosis in people um, with HIV. And then there was another cross-sectional study of hepatic steatosis and fibrosis in women who had switched to integrase inhibitors um, compared to those who didn't switch in an observational study, and I believe this is from the, the WISE. And they, they observed in this study higher rates of steatosis in the integrase switch group um, with greater than one year of exposure, but no difference in fibrosis. So provocative um, and not clear what the meaning is. I think that um, the, what we need to think about is the sort of metabolic consequences of weight gain um, over the long term. And then the last thing I wanted to just pop in and just say a word about, um, there's a ton of COVID data, and I know we're all tired of COVID. Um, and the, uh, but this is a new drug that, um, uh, and Citrovir, which is uh, a C3L protease inhibitor. So the same mechanism of action as Paxlovid, uh, except for this drug doesn't have ritonavir as a booster. It's an unboosted uh, protease inhibitor. They reported the phase three part of a phase two, three study that was conducted in Japan in what's called a standard risk population. So people that were not at high risk for progression to COVID. And that the main, um, the participants got treated for five days. The, the, um, they were enrolled within, I think, five days of symptoms. And they looked at um, viral, they looked at symptom changes. Um, and basically the graph on the right shows there was a significant reduction in the time to resolution of five symptoms um, of about a day uh, for those who started the drug within 72 hours of onset of COVID. They also found in a post hoc exploratory analysis um, that the presence of two or more long COVID symptoms was reduced in those who received the drug. Now, not uh, post hoc, but pre-specified, they looked at viral culture results, so not just antigen or PCR, but actual viral titer. With the um, treatment, they looked at baseline day two, four, six, and nine. And you can see fairly significant and prompt reductions in culturable virus from people who were started on the treatment. So clearly an antiviral um, that uh, has activity, some improvement in symptoms, question of long COVID is now being studied in the high risk population in uh, a global phase three study. So it's a drug to see what happens, uh, whether it might be another alternative down the road. Although COVID studies are getting really hard to do um, because 
of fortunately lower event rates uh, in people with COVID now. Um, so symptom measures are becoming more of a focus. Uh, um, and I think we'll see what happens with um, whether we can really reduce symptoms effectively. But if a, if a COVID treatment drug were to reduce long COVID, I think that would be a big deal. Okay, so summary, um, there's a lot of data at CROI and you'll hear more of it the rest of today. I think really provocative data about use of cabrilpivirine in viremic um, people, and we need to study this more. Um, more data to support the safe switches to long-acting treatment uh, in those who are suppressed, um, but still a lot of work on implementation that needs to be done for this therapy to be rolled out in a way that's available um, and, and can be um, effective. The weight. The weight change situation, I think it really depends on what you're comparing it to. Um, the declines, I have to say, seem very modest after switching off uh, TAF, FTC, and dolutegravir to TLD. And that maybe our focus needs to be more on these background rates, of high rates of obesity, and what we can do about that. So thanks for your attention, and I'm happy to, to take any questions. So we're open to questions. They're passing out cards, and I'm not sure, or do we have mics for, yeah, there are mics. So let's encourage people to come on, come on up. We're meeting in person. I can't see anything. Oh, don't touch the mics. They told me that once before. It's okay, we recognize people may not have had enough coffee. We are running a little behind, so can't see. Let me look at this. Hey, um, I have a question. Person. Um, <clears throat> there are, I guess, two things, which I guess one thing that wasn't at Croy and that you didn't mention around long acting ART is. Um, not just non-adherence, but salvage and use in combination with lenacapavir. And I didn't know if I missed something, where there's something on the horizon, but that's one thing that I think we're all waiting for in our non-adherent and in RTI-resistant individuals. Um, and I guess the second thing is, um, you know, I'm involved in uh, some projects around aging, and, uh, and HRSA doesn't actually fund exercise. So I just, you know, more on the benefits of exercise, not just actually around frailty, uh, strength, balance, aging, uh, but quality of life and actually cognitive function. So I guess yeah. hoping to hear more about those things. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Benson is going to talk a little bit about lenacapavir, but the specific issue that you raised, the combination of lenacapavir and, um, and, and long-acting cabotegravir, I think it's a... Uh, really fascinating idea for people with NNRTI resistance and there are people trying to put together studies to address that. It's a little bit challenging uh, because cabotegravir for treatment is only approved with real pivorine. 
So they have to break apart the combination. Um, and then you have what's considered an asynchronous regimen where one treatment might be given every eight weeks and one every six months. But I absolutely agree that um, people are going to be trying this at home. If <laughs> yeah, desperate, right. Compassionate use, I, I think that's that's definitely the case. And and um, I didn't get to cover you know everything about um, that was presented at aging. There was a really phenomenal plenary um, by George Kuchel about aging and geroscience and, and HIV that I would recommend listening to. Um, but I do think and in in that small uh, study of exercise in frailty, they did also show improvement in quality of life. So. Definitely a myriad of benefits, and the key is trying to figure out how to integrate this into many of our programs in a way that people can access and benefit from it. There, yeah. Another, on another brave soul. No, there, there was one question about the new COVID drug, whether they measured rebound. Um, they, yeah. The data, data about rebound wasn't presented um, at the meeting, but I'm pretty sure they measured it and they'll be presenting it in a future conference because uh, it's, a, it's, a uh, it's a good question. Um, there was some other data about rebound that was presented about the rates in people on placebo, just reminding us that it happens even if you don't take a treatment. So, yeah. So, um, I work in a busy city clinic with a lot of adherence issues, and we've had three Cabanuva failures. Um, my patient had no resistance, had been on Big Tarby, perfect picture, very compliant, only issue was he was um, raging alcoholic, um, but kept his appointments. And when he started to fail, and I did an archive, he lost all of the um, NNRTI and integrase, including Victoria. So only one pill a day I have for this person is Sentusa. The other two failures were um, low viremia, patient insisting they wanted it, no um, resistance, past resistance tests, all clean. Again, archive picked up resistance. So just get archives before you start patients. Really important. So that's that's a really um, important observation. So the archive that was done before they started showed that they had these mutations there. Um, I think those have been, it's been hard to interpret those data in other contexts. And I think it's a really good um, suggestion for people who are going to be studying this potentially in, in additional people, it's the value of that in predicting uh, who's going to fail. And it, you know, the, the switch data, it's not a 100% response rate. There are There is a failure rate, and uh, I think our experience with this, we're going to learn more as we go on, but it is disappointing when that happens. Okay, so this is from a physician involved in correctional health. The cost issue is huge in log-acting ARV as these are not covered in the jail um, by the patient's own insurance. So there's a dilemma as to what to do when they come in on long-acting. Yeah, that, yeah. I think that really depends on your jurisdiction too as to whether they can make exceptions when somebody has already has access to something outside when they come in and depending how long they're going to be. 
um, there. Um, but also then the other dilemma is how you switch off uh, onto other treatments. Um, so it is, I guess I don't have an answer for you. It is a dilemma and um, I think it's one that has to be worked out locally with um, different providers. So thanks for raising the, the question though. All right, thank you. Thank you brave people for asking questions too. <laughs> And thank you, Judy, for a fantastic overview about covering what others are going to cover. 